This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word that you would speak to us by your spirit. We pray that your spirit would speak very, very clearly. We admit, Father, that in the distraction of our mind, it's so often hard to hear you. But in the thorns and thistles of our hearts, it's so often hard to receive your word. We pray that you would be gracious. We pray that where we need rebuke, you would be gentle. Where we need encouragement and comfort, you would be strong. But that we would receive the words of eternal life, and most of all, that we'd see Jesus in his glory and come to understand something of his kingly power. These things we pray in his strong name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, for my work, though it often feels rather more like for my sins, I spend quite a bit of time at events amongst the global chattering classes. Universities are inherently international institutions. They were so even in their medieval foundations. And the more international that they are, the better they perform on all the rankings and the other measures of performance. Well, one outcome of all of that is that I have to spend time at conferences in which academics, politicians, journalists, policymakers, and others discuss the state of the world and the developing place of universities as institutions that have an important role shaping culture nationally, regionally, and even internationally, and as institutions that produce future leaders for our countries and our world. I've just this week come back from one such event in China and another in Korea. Well, I'd say that if there's a mood at these events at the moment, it's one of uncertainty and even underlying gloom. People talk about parallels between the present and the periods before the two great European wars. They talk about impending change from rapid technological development, and in particular, the impact of artificial intelligence and the so-called fourth industrial revolution. In particular, they try and predict the very different patterns of work and also of non-work that may emerge. They talk about the need to grapple with climate change, migration at unprecedented scale, and other problems for which our current systems of global governance seem inadequately equipped. They talk about the rapid rise in inequality, even in countries that have traditionally had a large middle class, the rise of populism, and a growing sense of frustration with our democratic institutions. But you don't have to have gone to one of these conferences to be familiar with these themes. There were strong echoes of them, for example, in the two election opening salvos delivered by the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition last Thursday. They're in our papers every day. Well, in such times of uncertainty, it seems to me that people often spring to one of two sources of comfort. I'll draw these by way of caricature with all the limitations and dangers of caricature, but also aware that caricatures are often helpful in highlighting the essential features of a position. The first source of comfort is the superhero. And it's no surprise that the Marvel characters, first created back in 1939, are back in vogue. My two-year-old doesn't have a huge vocabulary, but he can say Iron Man and Spider-Man with excellent diction. 
little ones pick up very quickly what's in the culture. A superhero's always on the side of the right and rewards and protects the good and the vulnerable with an assumption that there's an overlap between those two groups. Superhero narratives occasionally play with moral ambiguity, but they can't stray too far away from the basic formula or they lose their appeal. Most importantly, the superhero always fixes your problem for you. All you have to do is stand out of the way, watch and admire. The second source of comfort, given that superheroes are in short supply, is the therapist. Amongst millennials in the United States, just over one in five are currently seeing a counsellor, while less than one in ten baby boomers are doing so. There's a debate about whether this represents an actual increase in mental illness, but we do know that it represents an increase in the appeal of the therapist as an option. Twice as many baby boom boomers as millennials say they'd never see a counsellor. In Australia, the number of clinical psychologists per 10,000 of the population keeps growing, with clear evidence that they're no less busy than they were before. Unlike the superhero, the therapist doesn't fix your problem for you. She can listen and ask questions and help you to realise that you can solve your own problems if you find the right way to frame them. Well, it does seem to me that these deep and I have to say somewhat sometimes adolescent longings for the superhero and the therapist are hermeneutical filters through which we read so much of our understanding about God, about the incarnation, about salvation, about prayer and providence, about theodicy, and a million other things beside. They also shape the way we think about power and authority and its exercise in our lives, in our homes, our churches, and our countries. Some of us are superhero folk, some like the therapist, and many of us wander between wanting sometimes one and sometimes the other. Superhero people can have trouble with the incarnation, because they've decided beforehand that, as a former colleague of mine who's a New Testament scholar used to put it, God into man doesn't go. They know that they know that because they've decided beforehand what God is like. He's powerful and purposeful and efficient and good, and he doesn't like mess. The gospel stories that these people love generally involve stilling a storm or some such thing as that. In terms of power and authority in the church and the world, they want a similar clarity with its strong exercise, and they find plenty of proof text to support that in the epistles. When they pray, they want answers. And if they don't get the answers that they know to be right, it must be because of a problem either with God or with them. Maybe God doesn't really exist or isn't really good. Or maybe like a superhero, he only works for the good and the vulnerable and they don't quite stack up on either front. Suffering, particularly the senseless suffering of the good, is a huge problem for them. As one English writer used to put it, even if we can see some ultimate purpose in some suffering, what about cancer in fish? In other words, there are some things that a superhero just shouldn't let happen. So the response of the goddess therapist camp is to emphasize that the incarnation was the most logical thing of all for a god such as the Hebrew god to do. He's always been a god who stands with and for his people, who are, after all, made in his own image. The gospel stories these people love are stories such as Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. 
in terms of power and authority in the church and the world, they emphasize the New Testament focus on servant leadership and that the greatest of them all is to be the servant of all. Some of them go so far as to saying that in prayer, we ought really not to expect anything actually to happen in the world that would not otherwise have happened, except that we will be changed in the experience of prayer itself. In other words, some would say that God never actually cures cancer in response to prayer, but that he may change me so that I can deal with cancer better. Sufferings to be expected in this broken world, and God's role is to help me get through it. The cross they sometimes hold up not as a moment in which God decisively acted, but as a great example of suffering love. Now put these two hermeneutical filters over the story of the entry into Jerusalem, and characteristically, we see the way in which the New Testament blows apart our conception of God, of power, and of authority. Read one way, this is a superhero story. The cheering crowd clearly wanted a superhero, the conqueror of Psalm 118. And Jesus looks as if he might live up to their expectations. He's making a bold political statement. He's totally in charge. He knows where the donkey is to be found and organizes the entry in advance. It may be that in claiming the donkey, he's drawing on ancient law regarding the requisitioning of property by kings and by Jesus' time by rabbis. He comes from the Mount of Olives in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the arrival of the Messiah. He allows people to wave palm branches and to throw down their coats with echoes of the Maccabean arrival in Jerusalem to claim kingship. The whole story is one in which Jesus is totally in charge, aware of his calling to fulfill the role that only the Messiah could fulfill, and in that to declare his authority as king. Just in case we miss the point, Matthew underscores it by pointing to the messianic prophecy of Zechariah, your king comes to you. And by having the crowds respond with words that link the proclamation of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, with the line, Hosanna to the son of David. This is David's royal son coming to David's royal city. There's absolutely nothing supine or passive or therapist-like about this. Jesus is in charge. It's no wonder that the city is stirred. And yet, Jesus is, after all, coming to die. And he knows. Moreover, there's something ridiculous about the scene built into the text itself. At the end of the passage we read, when Jesus has triumphantly come as king, the city-based crowds are recorded as asking, just who is this bloke? And the answer, roughly paraphrased, sounds like someone from Bogabri who claims to speak for God. Moreover, this king is coming riding on a donkey in peace, and some scholars argue an identification with the poor, not on a war charger. A superhero can find a better ride. So in Christian imagining, this figure on the donkey often looks more like a therapist than a superhero, a sad but knowing guy who's plodding off to his death with a faraway look, a figure being led to the gallows and not to a victory, not to a throne, someone whom the crowds might have regarded not as causing a stir in the Greek word from the text that's at the root of the word seismic, but rather as harmless, 
Right on, right on in majesty, in lowly pomp, right on to die. So is this a superhero king making a triumphal entry? Or is this a regional prophet on a folly that will only lead to his death? Someone who's about to take on and win history's greatest battle? Or a therapist who knows that they've all missed the point and is really just awaiting his fate? Conquering king or Swinburne's pale Galilean? Well, I think the answer to this puzzle lies in a reformulation of the way in which we think about power and authority. Jesus blows apart the simple categories that give us comfort. He's powerful like a superhero, but not dominating in the same way. He's comforting like a therapist, but far from harmless. Jesus both stills the storm and weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He enters Jerusalem as a king coming to claim his reign, and dies on a criminal's cost across as a final act of victory. The epistles are right that clear lines of authority in the church and society are important, but also that we must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Prayer is a powerful weapon to change the world, and a mystery which we do not always find in which we do not always find that things turn out as we expect. The cross is both God's final and decisive act in history and foolishness to the Greeks, and a stumbling block to the Jews. In our simple categories, what we fail to understand is that the power at the centre of all things is ultimately a power of self-giving love, both powerful and self-giving. Jesus radically revises the popular understanding of messiahship. The crowds don't like it and call for his death. But in that death, God is taking into himself all the sin and suffering and pain and anger of the world and beginning a process whereby relationship is healed and the world one day will be put to rights. In Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the seal of that process, the vindication of Jesus' understanding of his role and the vindication of his vision of power and authority. He's starting a new community in which no one, not even superheroes, are to lord it over one another, but in which authority is to be exercised for service to the point of death. Our problem is that we can't imagine a power that stands with the suffering, enters into our pain, does not force us into quick or easy solutions, respects our right to, re to rebel, and yet is strong and good and will ultimately be victorious not through the death of others, but through the death of the Messiah himself. The superhero can't operate in a world in which people are free to make foolish choices. She can only operate in the two-dimensional world of the cartoon, and God knows that love requires our freedom. The therapist isn't ultimately much use because she can't actually bring resolution to the things that bind us. The vision of Jesus is that there's nothing passive or supine about self-giving love, that it is the power that brought the world into being, but that love entails the choice not to love and that we, the loved who chose rebellion, need God in love to build a way back to himself. As one English writer puts it, there's nothing passive about this any more than there's something passive about a mighty fountain that always gives out and never takes in. 
A better hymn for Palm Sunday than Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. Maybe conquering kings their titles take from the foes they captive make. Jesus by a nobler deed from the thousands he's has, he has freed. It, it, it captures the strength of this giving God. God is not a superhero and not a therapist. He's the creator of the universe who in his love allowed his world to rebel and in the death and resurrection of his son built a way back for us. Well, this has enormous consequences for us. In relation to the incarnation, it means that God becoming human was the center point of all history, not just something possible, but something necessary if he was to take our sin and suffering and pain in love into himself and to bring it healing and forgiveness. In relation to prayer, it means that God does sometimes miraculously intervene in the ordinary course of affairs, but that he never does so in a way that would wrap the whole show up now, but only as a foretaste of the best that's yet to come. That said, he longs to intervene for our good, and he does it far more often in response to our prayers than we give him credit for. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. I once had the experience of my family firmly praying for two people at exactly the same time to recover from what were regarded as almost certainly terminal illnesses. One was miraculously healed in a way that baffled doctors, and the other died. I can't explain why God sometimes intervenes in a way to bring healing now and sometimes makes us wait, but I do trust that he knows what he's doing. Similarly, any theodicy must begin with an acknowledgement that the God who rode to his death as an obscure regional prophet understands our suffering, but also acknowledge that God hates our suffering, sometimes as a foretaste of the new creation, intervenes to alleviate it now and sometimes enables us to wait to the resurrection of all things. Finally, it has implications for the exercise of authority in the church and in society. Leaders ought not to be frightened to exercise their God-given authority. Those of us who are members of church communities and civil society should have a fundamental orientation towards cooperation. But leadership should always be self-giving and others-promoting even to the point of death. A world of superheroes and of therapists is an easy world. The strange story of this king on a donkey who's completely in charge and completely allows others to take him off to death. This story that reveals the powerful self-giving love at the heart of all things is much more difficult to live with, much more nuanced, much richer in its understanding of the world, and ultimately much more satisfying. But it is full of paradox, and it's not easy to grasp at once. It is indeed foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those who are being saved, both Greek and Jew, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Well, I think a good way into understanding the nature of this power more and more as we travel through this Holy Week is daily to meditate on the implications of Philippians 2 and to let it sink into our hopes 
our fears, our jobs, our relationships, our understanding of reality. If we let this mind be ours, we will begin to catch the logic of the donkey-riding king. Have the same mindset, Paul writes, as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe that if we really let this sink into our thinking, worrying, hoping lives, then we'll find that it blows apart far more than our understanding of power and authority. It will change just about everything we know and everything we are. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.